0: Coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap, Lenovo and Google suffer from some bad DNS hijacking problems. Everyone wants to secure your data, but just not from them, and how TurboTax profits from cyber tax fraud. Then it's a great batch of your questions, our answers, a rockin' roundup, and much, much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. TechSnap. Hi everyone, and welcome to TechSnap. This is episode 203 of Jupiter Broadcasting's Weekly Systems Network and Administration Podcast. We stream this episode live on February 26th, 2015. This episode is brought to you by our three fine sponsors: DigitalOcean, Ting, and IX Systems. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this year's show goes on. Our live stream, why well, that's powered by the incredible Scale Engine over at ScaleEngine.com. You've got to go check that out. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is our host, the admin, the tech. And the teacher, Mr. Alan Jude. Hey there, Alan. Hey, Chris, everybody. Thanks for watching. Hey, Alan. I'm excited because uh, for some reason, even though we've done 203 episodes back to back to back, when we have like when we change it up, it still feels new. Like so next week. We're recording – it's a double snap. We're recording two yep. tech snaps back-to-back. We're starting at 11 a.m. Pacific over at jblive.tv. We'd love to have you join us. Also, a great chance to get your email answered in the show, so please send in your emails. But anyways, like, even though like, we've done that a few times now, like, I'm still yep. like, oh, yeah, we're going to go hardcore next week. We're going to go two tech snaps like, like, like we haven't done it before. But I don't know yeah. why. I'm excited already. And, and this week – I should be excited about this week because this week it is a huge show huge yes. show, so much has it, it, been going it on it
1: didn't mean to be I actually started kind of late on the prep because of so many other things happening and trying to organize other stuff. Right. And I, then I had two stories and I was like, oh, I kind of really need a third story. So I went looking and I was like, oh, look at this. And oh, it's actually two things. And, and oh, yeah. oh, now it's taken over the whole show.
0: Yeah. Uh, uh, and, then, and then, of course, our first story last night, I saw you in the chat room when this like story was developing and you were like poking around and looking at it. I'm like, oh, I know that's going to be on TechSnap tomorrow. So uh, that's probably where we should start is like this whole Lenovo domain hijacking situation. I don't even know what's been going on, but I saw you were experimenting last night. So fill us in, Alan. A little bit. Uh, So uh,
1: I just saw on uh, Twitter, actually my business partner sent me a Skype message when he saw about it because he knew I'd be interested. Of course. Uh, If you went to Lenovo.com last night, rather than getting a website trying to sell you a bunch of computers, uh, you got a random slideshow of a person.
0: Yeah, really weird. Like, yeah, and like some yeah young kid or something. Yeah, uh,
1: and if I looked at the source code and I saw there was a bunch of iframes going to other places and I was like, oh, be careful, you know, there could be exploits in that, you know, that's how exploit kits are hidden in web pages yeah, and so on. Yeah, yeah. Although uh, half of the iframes appeared did, to didn't load at that point. Uh, and anyway, so there is obviously a lot of speculation on uh, uh, Twitter and so on saying Lenovo had got hacked. Uh in particular, in this case, it wasn't actually Lenovo's website that was defaced, right? Uh, but their domain was hijacked, and basically, instead of pointing that, instead of www.lenovo.com pointing to their web server, it pointed to a different web server that contained the. Uh, defacement page.
0: So they didn't have to breach their servers because they were able to get a little bit further up in the uh, internet chain there and go after the DNS. And
1: uh, basically redirect it instead. (laughs) Uh, Hey, so Alan,
0: does that mean they also got their emails and stuff like that?
1: Well, specifically, when you do a DNS hijack like that, where in this case uh, they changed the domain name servers, uh, the DNS servers that serve out uh, the Lenovo stuff, it meant that they also could control the MX record. And if they pointed it to a domain they had set up, then they would uh, be able to uh, receive all the emails that were sent to lenovo in that period that's
0: way better than owning some stupid web server
1: <laughs> yeah uh well if you were to take over the real mail server you would have all the yeah, email going emails. back you'd have the right, archives yeah. and so on that Rather would be the sweet just button. the live incoming emails yeah, yeah, but yeah yeah uh you know that's a serious problem for lenovo because they don't even know what emails that they didn't end up getting uh during that time and so on no uh, so yeah uh, the lenovo.com website was replaced with a slideshow of uh unidentified person uh, the attack was apparently carried out by members of lizard circle or lizard squad lizard, or something yeah. i think uh the twitter handle was lizard circle like if you clicked on the slideshow that's what i sent you. but i think that was just because the lizard squads all their other twitter accounts had already been suspended yeah <laughs> so they were using a different name uh the identity of the person in the slideshow isn't confirmed uh but some reports suggest that uh the ones in this slideshow and the other one we'll talk about in a minute uh, are members of another hacking group called Hack the Planet that has been trying to undermine and expose Lizard Squad for a couple of months now. <laughs> so rather than, uh, you know, some people are claiming they were members of Lizard Squad. It's like, well, if you deface the page, would you really put your own face on it? Uh, it was more likely the. Uh, uh, what they were doing was taunting uh, the people that are trying to work against them. Uh and it also, just uh, the the look of the the, the slideshow made it look, kind of look like the Lizard Squad people had, like hacked somebody's webcam and were recording the guy or something. Yeah, it was like.
0: really weird.
1: Yeah, uh, but it turns out what happened was the Lizard Squad was able to compromise Webnic.cc, which is a big domain name registrar, especially very popular with the uh, the underground uh, internet stuff. It's where a lot of the domains for like uh, the credit card stolen credit card shops and so on are sold. But they actually have mainstream domains as well, like lenovo.com and google.com.vn, which is Google's uh, top-level domain for Vietnam. Yeah. Uh, Apparently, they were able to use a remote command injection vulnerability in order to uh, make the server at WebNIC run whatever command they wanted, Mm. and they made it run and install uh, their uh, (laughs) rootkit. So now uh, they had a rootkit installed on the registrar's infrastructure and had complete control over the domains of everybody there, not just Lenovo. Love it. Uh, Then they used that access to change the authoritative name servers from Lenovo to their own uh, so they could show the defacement page. Uh, They also allowed them to intercept all the incoming emails to any at Lenovo.com email address. Uh, They apparently used Cloudflare to host the defacement site. Oh, really? The The slideshow. slideshow. Mm -hmm. Uh, And eventually the uh, Facebook engineers... uh, heard about it or whatever saw that that was the problem and uh, they returned uh, made the site forward to the real Lenovo uh, web servers so that you know even though Lenovo could go to you know uh, and get control of the domain back yeah uh, anybody who went to the site or resolved the site and you know Google's DNS cache and so on would be pointing to the Cloudflare IPs not the Lenovo ones for possibly up to a day or two and so Cloudflare. Uh, change the config on their side to proxy the traffic over to Lenovo's real site. Um, So there's that. Um, Hmm. And then, uh, as I kind of briefly mentioned, uh, because they took over Webnik.cc, they were actually able to do the same thing to Google.com.vn with the slideshow of a different person, uh, one of the second people from uh, the other hacking group. And uh, at the top of the page, they also had some shout-outs to their friends, including Brian Krebs.
0: Heyo. Hey, Mr. Krebs. Yes, Mr. The Squad out.
1: and Krebs have had, uh, you know, quite the little rivalry going back so and forth. Like, yeah. Making fun of him.
0: Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> apparently, they also managed to get the authorization codes uh, for the domain. So when, if you want to transfer a domain from one Star to another, uh, it used to work on a system of just sending an email and, and confirming it, but it was you know that wasn't very secure. So instead, they have the system of authorization codes where you get this code and is required in order to initiate a transfer of a domain from one person to another. Uh, so apparently, they got those and possibly could have stolen the Lenovo.com domain and transferred it to their own registrar and their own account and had control over it. Yeah. Uh, and you know that could have taken Lenovo weeks to get that sorted out or even longer. You know, at that point, it would probably have to go up to ICANN and actually be, you know, adjudicated, uh, in order to get the controller domain back to the right person. Not a good week for Lenovo, Alan. I mean, you yeah. have the oh, Superfish thing, but Google also uh, got hit with this. Yeah, they were just—it was uh, less of a big deal because it was Google.com.vn, yeah, not Google.com that it happened to, right? But
0: even still, like, talk about a th- bad thing after bad thing. I mean, Lenovo gets caught with Superfish, then they get. This, which a lot of people saw, it it was noticed. I saw a lot of people talking about it on Twitter. I saw you talking about it. I saw IRC talking about it. I'm telling you, like, the timing of that is awful for Lenovo. It it just it it is what it is, though. Uh, So, and that's that's the big problem with keeping DNS secure. Is uh, if you don't, then. People well, like it Google wasn't the that was
1: insecure. It was actually the registrar that got yeah, hacked. Yeah, that's what I meant. Yeah. Now, we've seen similar things happen. I think, uh, what, Twitter? But not by those yeah. uh A while ago, Twitter and a couple other places. It's like their picture uh, domain,
0: was it? Their images domain?
1: I think, yeah, place. a couple of different things uh, where they did the same thing. Like, hack into the registrar. Yeah. Now, in yeah. those other cases, they hacked Twitter's account at the registrar. Right. Whereas in this case, they didn't hack Lenovo's account. They hacked the entire registrar.
0: yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good one. Go. Which is
1: uh obviously a, a bit of a different uh situation. But mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. any other thoughts on that one, Alan? And and it uh it kind of relates to that story. Um Network Solutions decided that uh they would come up with this much more complicated and secure system to prevent this from happening and subscribe all their customers to it, uh even though it costs sixteen hundred dollars a year. <laughs> and they just started charging <laughs> people sixteen hundred dollars a year, being What's like, Oh, it's our new security feature that it's, you opted into without asking.
0: It's more better, don't worry about it. Yeah. Wow. Uh, all right. Well, uh, I'll tell you about something that generally is better and it's something you should probably go check out, and that's our first sponsor this week. That's IX Systems. Go over to IXSystems.com slash TechSnap to let them know you heard about it right here on the TechSnap program. And go check out some of their amazing rigs powered by those Intel Xeon processors and put, toge- put together by the one and only iX Systems White Glove approach. They have a great reputation, and we've been using them as customers for years right here on the show. Alan has yep. a bunch of them uh, over at Scale Engine. We've got them here. I've got some at, at back at JBHQ and here at JB1 Studios. And the other thing I love about iX Systems is uh, they are peers in the community. In fact, they're really leaders in the community. Mm-hmm. And uh, they just posted their Scale 2015 recap up on their oh, blog. Yes, I was looking
1: for this yesterday and it wasn't up yet.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's there. And uh, let's see, Matt was down there. Denise was down there. Uh, James was down there. Uh, Drew was down there. And they all were at scale on behalf of the FreeBSD project. You know, they go down there. Obviously, they're also representing IX Systems, but they're also like. The idea is we want to also just promote Free BSD as a platform because IX Systems is all in on open source and Free BSD. Yep. They know they can drive and build build the best solutions, and that's why they 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 have people that work on this stuff that work at IX Systems. I love that
1: they uh, made a the shout out to TechSnap specifically in the article there too.
0: Oh, did they? I haven't read it yet.
1: But the last line above the picture.
0: Well, I'm going to read it right now. It says, uh, "Oh yeah, I heard many people mention that they had heard the great things about us, especially from TechSnap and the Linux Action Show. That's awesome." That is great. Yeah, go check them out right now. Uh, go to ixsystems.com/slash-techsnap and uh, learn more about some of the systems they can build from you, uh, for you. For uh, you, I have here at the studio a uh, ZFS array that we have now. Some of the more precious is that it th- behind you, <laughs> back there, right? See, right, see, right there. That's the console right there, Alan. Where, um, uh, yeah, you see, I have four okay. screens, uh, and some of the most precious things we have we store on these arrays. And so for us, yeah, it's super um, important that it's IX Systems hardware that's in there.
1: Right, and and also just the ZFS. Like if you see the IX had the article about how much do you love your files, and it shows what happens if you yeah. don't use ZFS, and then oh, that yeah. awesome picture of me and my kid is now all screwed up yep. because one bit error.
0: Yeah, yeah, and uh, uh, and then that's also uh, and also I, what gives me a little peace of mind is that IX is all in with the community with. With the FreeBSD Foundation, they're in with yep. their vendors. Like They really have these amazing relationships. They're integrated in, and they truly understand it, which to me means that they're always going to be the people that are on the front of the leading edge that can watch the stuff and help make sure that it matures into an enterprise-ready, stable product that is great for your data center. So go to yeah. IXSystems.com. Yeah. You know, they've been doing now. this for a Never. long time. I mean, essentially, right? like, they've, like... I mean, if it, if it, you read the history page, you can see that IX Systems
1: actually traces its roots all the way back to BSDI. The first, you know, commercial offerings of BSD, and it has a lineage that goes all the way through, yeah. and they've done. They survived the .dot com stuff, yeah. and want to be a real business uh, that just is there to, uh, you know, they, they like their jobs and they just want to do it that way, and they just want to be a good company and have happy customers. Yeah. They're not out to get acquired by you know, HP or something. That's not what they want. They want to uh, build the best products and uh, have fun doing their jobs. The only time they would be acquired by somebody like
0: HP is if they were going to come in and run the place. Because, I mean, (laughs) let's be serious, right? Like, HP... Yeah, it would be the other way around. IX Systems will buy HP. Yeah, uh, I mean, seriously. Because uh, HP and, uh, I mean, I'll just call it out. These other companies out there that you buy your hardware from, the one that I've been buying hardware from for over the last 15 years, they're all a clown show. They're all a clown show. And uh, IX Systems has got it dialed in. They've got it figured out from the support standpoint, from the sales standpoint, from the integration standpoint, from the testing standpoint, and the white glove support end to end. And the and you know the other thing is is they they also work closely with Intel to make sure they're shipping them with some of the best stuff out there. Those Intel Xeon yep. processors and they that. have
1: the new stuff like sooner than anybody else. Yeah, I love
0: it. And uh, it's like
1: I got the the newest processor when I bought my router and it wasn't even in stores yet. (laughs) (laughs) Like, it'll take us two extra weeks to ship your server because we have to wait for the processor to come directly from Intel. Intel's
0: still fabbing that for us.
1: Yes.
0: Go over to iaccessions.gov slash techsnap. Check them out. Go grab that white paper to get things moving, too, if you're having any troubles. Trust me. This is one thing you're going to thank us for uh, over yeah. and over and over again for many years.
1: I, the biggest thing is that they don't just have salespeople. They have sales engineers who are people that have actually been a sysadmin and actually know yeah. exactly what you're you're going to be doing. And it's yeah. like, you know, oh, I need a rate Ray that does this, and they're going to know exactly how to handle it.
0: Right. And speaking of scale, I'll give a quick plug. Uh, scale 13, the Linux Action Show from the Floor, a four-hour and 30-minute long event from scale. Lots, I think there's like almost a dozen interviews in there, plus a few random people nice. that stopped by, uh, some hardware and gadget reviews in there. It's a long show. But if you want to see some of our coverage of scale 2015 or scale 13x, however they like to be called, you can find it over Jupiter Broadcasting. It's scale 13x, the Linux Action Show from the Floor.
1: They probably shouldn't call it that because 13x makes me think it's from 2013 instead of 2015 Yeah, that's
0: what I thought too. It's like, oh, or, you know, and like when they do 14x, okay, so it's the, okay, so then I'll get, okay, it's the 14th scale, but it also makes me think of 2014. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right, Alan, I love that you caught this one from Schneier because I saw people talking about this online this week, uh, just like last, yesterday, I think. I mean, it was really recent. Uh, and it's Bruce uh, Schneier. Everyone wants, everyone, just come on, trust us with your data. Just be careful of everybody else. We, you can trust right. us. Just watch out for everybody else. <laughs>
1: Well, in particular, this was sparked by uh, Google's uh, Eric Schmidt at the uh, Cato Institute Surveillance Conference saying, (laughs) if you want your data to be secure, you have to store it at Google because it's the only place that'll be secure. Yeah. Right? And it's like Google's like, we can actually fight off governments. It's like, well, you don't exactly have a great track record of that one. Uh, But. in particular, you know, everybody's saying the same thing, right? Google and Facebook say, you know, we'll keep your data secure on our servers where we can look at it, but we won't let anybody else, don't worry. Right. Uh, or, you know, the government is like, yes, you should have secure communications because we don't want the Chinese to see what you're saying, but we need magic keys so we can see what you're saying.
0: Right. Or, I mean, look, this is Apple's big selling point. Buy, buy an iPhone because uh, we won't monetize your user data. You can trust your data with us. We'll encrypt the iPhone.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, like uh, a quote from Snyder here, governments are no different. The FBI wants people to have strong encryption, but it wants a backdoor access so that it can get to your data. Or the UK Prime Minister, David Cameron, wants you to have good security as long as it's not so strong as to keep the
0: UK government out of it. Right. And And, of course, the NSA spends lots of money ensuring that there's no security that it can't break. We've recently had uh, uh, President Obama was interviewed by Kara Swisher, where he said that he believes law enforcement should have access. Uh, James Comey, the director of the FBI, has said, multiple times even just as recently as last week that he thinks that you know strong encryption is absolutely fundamentally important this is the line strong encryption is fundamentally important however we need to have legal access right and uh,
1: those two things can't happen together it can't be strong encryption if then somebody other than the originating parties can have access to it if you build a backdoor into encryption it's not secure someone else is going to find out how to use that backdoor mm-hmm and then it's entirely useless. There was—I uh, don't have the link handy—but there was a at a security conference. The d- current head of the NSA was speaking, and uh, Michael uh, Rogers. Yeah, yeah. Um, somebody from the uh, from Yahoo, uh, uh, not the CEO, but yeah. uh, some big technical person at yep. Yahoo, was yep. asking questions like, "How are we supposed to do this?" And uh, the NSA guy was very deft at dodging the question and making it. Seemed like he had given an answer when he hadn't.
0: Uh, and also uh, Schneier asked him some questions too.
1: Uh, during oh, that, Yeah. I,
0: I, don't, huh, I don't have, have them handy, but yeah, he did. Yeah, he did. Yeah, Admiral uh, Michael oh, yeah. S. Rogers is the guy I think
1: yes. I'm thinking of. Uh, and basically he was saying, I don't believe that it's not possible to have encryption without backdoors. Uh, or I, I believe that it's entirely possible to have encryption with a backdoor that's still secure. And it's like, but if it has a backdoor, it's not secure. Yeah. So. No, it's not.
0: <laughs> yeah, I found the, uh, I found the article uh, you're talking about here. Uh, Mike Rogers uh, on, and Yahoo on the back door. So I'll link this in the show notes so people can read mm-hmm. about it. It looks like it was uh, Alex Stamos from Yahoo that was yes. asking him the questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, and here. you can see the NSA
1: guy trying to dodge the questions. Yeah. <laughs> A- and uh, the Yahoo guy tries to persist, but he just there's not much he can do. He can't force the guy to answer.
0: Right, yeah. What are you going to do?
1: Anyway, so continuing on with Schneier's points, uh, he actually quotes Whitfield Diffie uh, from an uh, interview he had done. Uh, he and Diffie had been interviewed at another place, and he I uh, grabbed a quote here. Uh, if you don't know who Whitfield Diffie is, he's a pioneering cryptographer who co-developed the Diffie hellman Key Exchange, which is how SSH and TLS work. It's basically, um, you know... Normally, with encryption, uh, if you have symmetric encryption, you have basically a key that a password that you and the person on the other end know. Right? You encrypt with that key, and someone on the other end can decrypt with it. But if you're talking to someone who you don't have a secure channel to to share the secret with, how do you come up with the initial secret? Right. Right. Yeah. And so the Diffie-Hellman key exchange is a way where you both uh, pick a random number, and then you uh, have a base number, and you just do uh, exponentiation on it such that it'd be really hard for someone in the middle watching to factor out and figure out what the three numbers are. Uh, And basically, it allows you to have uh, a secure connection over SSH uh, without having to have a password shared ahead of time. You can learn more about it if you want. I've talked about it in better detail than what I'm trying to say on the top of my head right now. Anyway, Uh, I followed. uh, So the quote from uh, Whitfield Diffie is, you can't have privacy without security. And I think we have glaring failures in computer security in uh, problems that we're working on for 40 years, right? He Like he, he invented some of this stuff 40 years ago and we still haven't got it perfect yet. No kidding. Uh, you, should, uh, you really should not live in fear of opening an attachment to a message. Uh, it ought to be confined. Your computer ought to be able to handle it. And the fact that we have uh, persisted for decades without solving these problems is partly because they're very difficult, but partly because there are a lot of people who want you Uh, to be secure against everyone except them. Uh, And that includes all your major computer manufacturers who, roughly speaking, want to manage your computer for you. Lenovo, anybody? (laughs) The trouble is, I'm not sure uh, of any practical alternatives. Hmm. Right? Hmm. Uh, you know, corporations want access to your data for profit. Governments want it for security purposes, uh, be they benevolent or malevolent. Uh, but Diffie makes an even uh, stronger point. We give lots of companies access to our data because it makes our lives easier. Yeah, and we're, we're cheap. Uh, so Bruce quotes himself from his uh, recent book, Data and Goliath. Hmm. I thought that was funny.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, convenience is the other reason we willingly give highly personal data to corporate interests yep. and put up with uh, becoming objects of their surveillance.
0: Right. Well look how handy Google Docs is, right? You yes, and I use or look it.
1: how handy the fact that Google Maps shares data between my searches on my computer and the searches on my phone. No kidding. I, right. I look up how to get somewhere. Yep. And then I get in the car, yep. it's like, oh, there's the one I wanted and there i'm i it's it's given me directions Google, where I to me go.
0: is the perfect example of a company that manages to constantly walk the line of just valuable enough that I'm willing to constantly compromise yeah. uh, and so i I don't really put the blame on them so much because I'm the sucker willing to yeah, do it
1: exactly uh, you gave the data to them, and you know they have some uh in the newer Android stuff they have some really creepy ones where you can uh let it uh combine more and more data together and it'll like Detect when you're driving home from work yes. because of the pattern, yes. and and tell you you'll be home in 27 minutes. Oh, dude, have
0: you? Uh, do you get very much access to Google Now up in Canada? Because I don't know how it works outside. Of they the US. have quite a bit. I have it mostly yeah. turned off
1: because yeah. I don't drive to work. You know that?
0: Like I get the I get the time estimation thing constantly. That's handy. The one time, and I I was really on the fence. I was about ready to pull the plug on my search history and Google Now because I just I, I was too, it was too much. And I kid you not. I was literally, the week I was thinking about this, Angela and I were out to dinner for her birthday. This was back in November. And I got a push notification from Google freaking Now saying, hey, there's an accident. If you want to make it to that concert you have scheduled at 8 o'clock, you need to leave where you, from where you are right now in five minutes. And if you don't leave in five minutes, you won't make it in time. And we were not planning to leave for another half hour. Yep. So it, it was like, okay, that's... So and I'd never told Google that I was going to a concert. I never put it on a calendar that I was going oh, to a concert. That's right. Well, it just mm. grocked it from the ticketmaster emails in my Gmail inbox. Ah, right, right, right. Yeah. And so and then my location. I've, I've noticed
1: now with my flight emails, I get a display at the top with <laughs> yeah. just the information I want
0: extracted out of the email. Yeah. Kinda nice. Kind of nice, but it means, of course, they're reading my emails, or the machine is at least. And that, yep. that's the creepy part. But again, I'm savvy enough to know I'm choosing to make that exchange and I'm choosing yep. to make it every time. Yep.
1: You, know, you chose to use Gmail too, right?
0: Yeah. So I don't blame them too yeah. much. So anyway,
1: I uh, continue the quote from Bruce. Uh, As I keep saying, surveillance-based services are useful and valuable. We like it when we can access our address book, calendar, photographs, documents, and everything else on any device we happen to be near. We like services like Siri and Google Now, which work best when they know tons about you. You know, social networking apps make it easier to hang out with our friends. Cell phone apps like Google Maps, Yelp, Weather, and Uber work better and faster when they know your location. <laughs> right. Letting apps like Pocket or Instapaper Paper know when your uh reading feels like, you know, a small price to pay for getting everything you want to read and what can be in one convenient place. Yeah. We even like it when ads are targeted exactly to what we're interested in. The benefits of surveillance in these other applications are real and significant. And he makes the point, you know, uh I'd much rather see ads that are uh might actually be useful to me. Uh and you know I, actually, now I just almost always see IX ads everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> really? Makes me feel bad because it's like <laughs> IX is paying to show those ads, and and I'm. No. Well, I am exactly the target audience. You're already I sold. Already know who they
2: are You're and sold.
1: I. Yeah. I, yeah, I'm already sold, and I've mm-hmm. seen the same thing with like um, a couple of other vendors that I use for stuff yeah. like uh, software that we use for video streaming. Yeah. Used to, I used to see their ad all the time.
0: What I get the most often is I get uh, stuff for stuff I've already bought. Like I searched for it, I bought it, and now I'm getting ads for it. Yes,
1: it's the problem with uh, what Google calls retargeting. Yeah. It's like when you look up something at a store, they keep showing it to you because you will come back and buy it, but it's like you need to set a different cookie if I've already bought it. Yeah. You know, when I actually check out saying, hey, don't try to sell me that anymore. Sell me stuff related to it maybe, but you don't want to sell me that because I already bought it.
0: I already (laughs) bought that dress. I mean, uh, wait, no, I'm kidding. Yeah.
1: Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Going on, uh, he says, last week we learned that the NSA broke into the Dutch company Gemalato and stole the (laughs) encryption keys for billions. That's billions of cell phones worldwide. Uh, That was probably because we as consumers don't want uh, to do the work of securely generating encryption keys and setting up our own security when we get our phones, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. we want it done automatically by the phone manufacturer we want our data to be secure but we want someone to be able to recover it when we forget our password right you know he says well we'll never solve these security problems as long as we're our own worst enemy that's why I believe that any long-term security solution will not only be technological but political as well Uh, we need laws that will protect our privacy from those who obey the law and punish those who break the law we need laws that require those entrusted with our data to protect our data and yes, we need better security technology, but we also need laws mandating uh, mandating that we actually use those technologies hmm. when they exist.
0: Hmm. You know, uh, y- y- there are sh- there's shades of something we're going to talk about in the roundup. Uh, Moxie Marlinspike uh, has basically said it's time for GPG to die. Mm-hmm. And some of his reasoning is almost exactly what Schneier is saying in this. In this
1: well, yeah, it's, also, right. it, it's too hard to use. It doesn't have the infrastructure. And basically, if it was the right solution, we'd be using it. And we're not, so obviously we need a better solution. Yeah. You know, my dad's never going to use GPG, so. Yeah, yeah. yeah GPG has uh, always more been a toy. I
0: this have one. a few thoughts, too, but I'll save it for the round. Uh, anyway, sure.
1: uh, but I think uh, at some level, part of the onus needs to be on the users as well. Right, the biggest security problem we have on the internet is password reuse. Right, people need to stop doing that. Yeah. Now, part of the solution might be using something other than passwords, but I don't really see a great solution for that. Uh, you know, a lot of sites have solved the problem by, you know, authentication became Twitter, Google, and Facebook, but that doesn't really solve the problem. It actually kind of uh, compounds it because if somebody hacks your Google, they now control all the things oh, yeah. that also authenticate off Google and so on. Oh yeah. Yeah. Although, Google has pretty good uh, heuristics. You know, they always uh, try to lock me out every time I go to
0: Japan. And Steam does, too. Like, there's other services that are getting hip to it as well. I've been logging into Steam, and apparently I've been getting hacked from Bulgaria for the last few days. Yeah. So Steam's been telling me about that, and, you know, it shuts it down, so I don't know what the guy gets. But have at it. hope you enjoy my Linux games.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, yeah, I think in the end, part of the onus needs to be on the users, and they have to be responsible for actually managing the security and, and passwords and so on. Yeah. Although... Yes, I, I do agree with Diffie's point is that, you know, email attachments, uh, we need to find a way to sandbox that nicely.
0: Yeah. Yeah, really. Uh, so uh, there you go. Great write-up. Mm-hmm. And uh, we'll have that linked in the show notes along with everything else that Alan talks about, as always. And, uh, Alan, that brings us to our next sponsor this week, and that is the great folks over at DigitalOcean. Head over to DigitalOcean right now. I'll tell you a little bit about how I use them this weekend in a way that just blew my mind. But first, let me get you set up. Just in case you're not in, you're not in the know, i got to tell you about DigitalOcean. Simple cloud hosting provider, dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easy way for you to spin up your own cloud server. What? What's that mean? Well, what that really means is you're going to get access to a really fast virtual server with root access, HTML5 console from post to login screen, with an amazing interface and an unbelievable price. And so you probably have already a few ideas of what you could do with that, but I'm going to tell you some of the things we use it for here. But here's some of the essentials. You're not going to believe this. You can get started in less than 55 seconds. Pricing plan started only $5 per month. It's going to get you 512 megabytes of RAM, a 20 gigabyte SSD, all SSDs, one terabyte of transfer, boom, for for five dollars a month, that, that's a lot of bandwidth for five dollars, and ssd back storage for five dollars. Yeah, I don't even know how they do that. I don't. I, well, they're they're cray. I mean, they made the they made the investment early on. That's really how they did it. Uh, yeah. And then they realized, though, like, okay, we can do the hardware. We can do all of that. We've also got to have some of the best data centers. So they've got multiple data centers in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, and London. They're gorgeous, tier one bandwidth. I mean, really performant. And then. They wrap it all in this amazing interface. It's like nothing you've ever seen to manage virtual servers before. It's incredible, intuitive, extremely powerful, and you can replicate the functionality on a larger scale with DigitalOcean's straightforward API. And tons of great community applications and resources are already written around that API. But if you need to scale something up for you, say you just want to, you want to take advantage of DigitalOcean's hourly pricing, yeah, they have hourly, and you just want to spin something up, script that why not work it into your puppet management infrastructure it's so great but uh this weekend this weekend we were able to bounce off a pretty amazing high definition xmpp video stream uh, from Noah, he bounced off a DigitalOcean XMPP server. We're gonna we're gonna talk about the details in a future Linux Action Show. Constant two megabit stream from the floor of Scale. We had it there, and then I had an XMPP receiver here in the studio, and and we just needed it for the weekend, so we spun it up. Yeah, we bounced and, that uh, well, signal. The, the great thing with having a
1: terabit or terabyte of bandwidth, but also you get a, a full one gigabit uh, network port. But a terabyte of bandwidth means you could run that two megabit stream twenty four seven for the whole month. And it wouldn't yeah, uh, yeah. go out of your no, uh, budget. I, w-
0: I wasn't worried at all. I was not worried at all. And here's the best part. You can get started and try out the $5 rigs just for free for two months if you use our promo code SNAPOCEAN. One word, SnapOcean all lowercase. That, you have to use that for us to get credit. You can apply that to your account. It'll give you a $10 credit. Then you spin up a $5 rig. You're good to go. You can try one of the more expensive ones, too. It's just a $10 credit, so it's really flexible. In fact, that's one of the things I like, too, is like if you've got a couple extra bucks in your PayPal account, you charge up your DigitalOcean account, and then you're good to go for a while, because it really lasts a long time. And uh, yep. when We use our promo code SNAPOcean. You get the $10 credit. You try out the $5 rig two months for free. Go deploy something like an XMPP server or GitLab or dro- well, and the best part
1: is when you were doing that one just for the weekend, you could do it on an hourly instance of the VPS. So you're only paying, you're not paying the $5 for the whole month. You're oh, just yeah. paying for the, the the hours you needed it for the one
0: weekend. Yep, yep, yep. And if you want to get started fast, they have a lot of great one-click application deployments. Uh, that will get like WordPress or GitLab just going in no time. Lots of good stuff. It's And then tons of great tutorials, including tutorials to get your free BSD droplet all set up. DigitalOcean.com, SnapOcean when you check out. Huge, huge thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the TechSnap program. Uh, you guys are rocking it these days. So, Alan. Yes. Now that brings us to our next story, the rise yeah. of tax fraud. And this is like... Um, a super story. This is a, this is a super story. This is so huge. This is like multiple stories combined into one You know mega when we story. have
1: like a Krebs article and it gets really big? Yeah,
0: yeah.
1: Uh, this was two Krebs articles <laughs> in one
0: thing. All right, so where do we start?
1: <laughs> yes, so uh, to start... Um, Fraudsters have uh, made billions of dollars last year by filing fake federal tax returns uh, in the names of unsuspecting people, right? So they steal your identity and file your tax return before you do and get your refund. Uh, And, you know, we've seen that happen quite a bit. Uh, And so the IRS has added a number of security measures and better automated screening and has been rejecting uh, more and more of the fraudulent returns so that people aren't... uh, losing money and the government isn't paying out Mm -hmm. uh to the fraudsters and that's actually driven the fraudsters to start targeting the state level uh tax administrations instead of the federal level
0: of course uh
1: and so because of that the uh because of anti-fraud improvements at the irs uh the state level uh tax fraud has gone up uh (laughs) 3,700 percent
0: 3,700 (laughs) percent
1: yeah uh so, earlier this month, uh, we talked about it in a, a round story. TurboTax was forced to stop uh, filings of uh, state tax refunds mm-hmm. uh, because of a high fraud rate. And, uh, you know, they looked around and noticed that, uh, no, nothing, uh, TurboTax wasn't hacked or anything. It was just, uh, you know, regular fraud. It wasn't, uh, just because there was a spike in it from TurboTax, it was just because the bad guys were using TurboTax, not because there was something wrong at TurboTax. Uh, to learn more about what was happening, uh, Krebs went and interviewed uh, Indu Kodukula, uh, the information uh, chief information security officer at Intuit, the company that owns TurboTax. And uh, he said, the IRS has gotten much better uh, than a few years ago with the perspective of fighting fraud. Uh, we think that what's happening is as a result of fraudsters are starting to target individual states instead of the federal government because the federal government is doing a better job of of putting a stop there. And the
0: states individually are going to have different results on how good they're going to be, so you target a state that's not so good and you got an easier time.
1: Yeah. Uh, So in the 2014 tax season, so that would be the 2013 taxes that you did in 2014, uh, the Treasury Inspector General for Tax Administration – Uh, Found that the IRS identified and confirmed 28,000 fraudulent tax returns uh, involving identity theft, whereas the previous year, uh, in their after the fact investigations, they found 85,000. So they've definitely uh, uh, tightened up quite a bit uh, in the last couple of years. Uh, But Krebs goes on, but there are 46 states in the union where taxpayers can file what's called an unlinked return. Meaning, they file a state return without uh, having to file a federal return at the same time. So, when the tax fraudsters file an unlinked return, it leaves the state on its uh, own to fight the fraud. And uh, we think that that's where the um, what's taken the states by surprise this year is because the fraudsters suddenly mm. switched from federal to mm-hmm. state, and they weren't really uh, set up. To the, fight states, this the individual side. states, don't have information sharing, and and yeah. They say uh, states allow unlinked returns because most taxpayers owe taxes at the federal level but are due refunds from their state. Thus, unlinked return allow taxpayers who owe money to the IRS to pay some or all of that off with the state refund money. Which is interesting because in Canada, at least in Ontario, we have a combined return that you just file with the federal government and then they, you know, oh. basically, the booklet you get with all the pages, mm-hmm. you file the federal one and then the provincial one is like, the middle couple of pages sure. and you get one final number at the end as a net refund or a net owing and you pay it all to the federal government and then they just send a transfer payment to the province for their portion of it or whatever and it helps with this a lot but mostly it just means you'll do one tax return instead of two and it's easier that way
0: moving to canada <clears> it's yeah. getting so anyway. annoying
1: Uh, And mostly, it would solve this problem of these unlinked returns, and also, apparently, Uh, the point of these unlinked returns is so that you can use the refund from one to pay for the other. It's like, well, if you just amalgamated them, I would just have one bill anyway. (laughs) Anyway, they say, unlinked returns typically have made up a very small chunk of Intuit's overall returns. Uh, However... Uh, As far as this year's tax filing season, Intuit has seen a uh, 37 fold increase in unlinked state only returns. Uh, Convinced that most of these requests are fraudulent, the company now blocks users from filing unlinked returns via TurboTax. You know, they didn't see very many of these returns before, and all of a sudden there were a lot. Yeah. And so they were like, and and that's why uh, the states asked them to stop processing. And while they started processing again after, uh, they don't allow unlinked returns anymore. You have to do the linked one. Hmm. Uh, It's it's very hard to imagine a fundamental demographic shift that would cause that kind of pattern. Uh, Our thought is that the vast majority of this is clearly not legitimate activity. Uh, The traditional way that income tax fraud has been perpetrated was to steal the identity of a person, then go to one of the online tax services and uh, create an account on their behalf and file the fraudulent return. However, there's also been a spike in compromised tax accounts. Uh, Most appear to be because of password reuse. So now uh what some of the fraudsters are doing are hacking your account at TurboTax or one of the other services like that uh where you did your return last year or whatever mm-hmm. and then they don't even need to steal your identity anymore they just change something to make the payment right. go to where they want because it to Because
0: you were and, what right because you were dumb enough to use the same password for your TurboTax that you used for your Hotmail account 5 years ago is that why or
1: Yeah things like that yeah uh we have seen many sites being compromised the last few years, like LinkedIn and Adobe and lots, uh, especially ones that didn't have good uh, uh, hashing on the passwords, where mm-hmm. they were able to reverse it. Yep. Like, Remember, LinkedIn was just a SHA uh, 256, and I think, was it Gawker before that that was mine just was in, MD5? The, I was just
0: going to say, mine was in the Gawker one, yep.
1: Uh, and then the Adobe ones were like not encrypted at all or were like triple desk or something that was silly and easy. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So then with piles of passwords like that dropped on the internet, the attackers just try those username or email and password combinations on all the tax preparation sites and they get a bunch of free accounts. Right. Uh, Then the guy from TurboTax says over the past uh, one and a half years, we've started to see more of this type of account takeover attack where a customer's TurboTax credentials were compromised at another site. Uh, describing the wave after wave of attempts by fraudsters to log into TurboTax using huge lists of credentials uh, leaked in the wake of breaches at other companies.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Well, you would think the first thing is if you see lots and lots of failed login attempts for different usernames and passwords from the same IP address, you should block that IP address. But anyway.
0: That's kind of one-on-one uh, on one so there, but yeah. <laughs> currently,
1: about 60% of uh, returns flagged as likely to be fraudulent by uh, Intuit appear to come from the state income tax refund fraud, while the other 40% are a result of account takeovers. Uh, but the account takeover attacks are definitely growing in frequency and intensity.
0: Uh-huh, it doesn't surprise me. Uh,
1: from the list validation attacks we've seen, that's where the attackers are taking a list username and password and trying to find which ones actually are valid uh, TurboTax logins. Uh, we know that credentials came from somewhere else. Uh, when you look at the credentials that have never been used uh, in our system trying to log in, it's a pretty good indicator that those credentials are not from our space. Right? So they're saying they didn't hack the TurboTax database and get the list of username and passwords from there because they're trying all these username and passwords that don't exist, mm. uh, which means they obviously are just trying lists mm-hmm. from somewhere else.
0: Mm. Yeah, Generic stuff even.
1: Hmm. Oh, right. Yes. Uh, somebody in the chat was pointing out the ones from uh, Adobe, the problem was that they were encrypted with a one key, and once somebody broke that, they got every password yes. back. Yes.
0: I remember we That's talked about that. That was yes. great. Yeah, you had, Like Mariah uh, like says, you had a good rant about that. In, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs>
1: anyway, going on. Uh, so security experts, including Krebs, have long talk, uh, called for TurboTax and other companies to implement two-step authentication for customers to help address the account takeover problem of uh, password reuse by customers. Sure. Earlier this month, Intuit announced that it would implement some uh, features like that, although the way they chose to do it may fall short of what security experts were really asking for. Uh, basically, what they do is if you're logging into an account that you haven't logged into TurboTax from before, so if you're logging in from a different IP address or computer, yeah, uh, then it'll ask you an extra question uh, like, you know, what was line 37 from your tax return two years ago or something like that? Well,
0: that's interesting. So they're going over your records and asking you essentially like a self-generated well, security question.
1: I don't, I don't think that's what their security questions are. So oh, okay. that's actually an example of what the Canadian government does when you're trying to log into your Canadian GHAX account. So
0: that's These, why it makes sense. Gotcha. Yeah.
1: Uh, <laughs> but the Intuit ones, uh, I had the out. list. Sorry. The Intuit ones, I had the list here. Uh, one of them is they use information from your Experian credit report. Okay. Okay. Uh, so, which is like, you know. Inaccurate. What bank is your account at or whatever? What I have found um, that is
0: Experian often has uh, things that are completely wrong about me on there. It turns out that the, the name Chris Fisher, mm-hmm. not that uncommon, Alan, ah, and other people so, can have it. Uh, began rolling out on February 13th. Uh,
1: yeah. Evaluating customer logins requiring additional information for returning customers who are logging in from a different device. Those users are forced to re in using one of three optional or additional authentication methods. Uh, they can get sent an email with an extra link to verify their uh, identity, enter a special code sent to them via text message, or uh, answer a series of knowledge-based authentication questions uh, from Experian.
0: You know, if 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 I wasn't... And
1: they say they're doing it to about 20% of their customers, which doesn't seem high enough.
0: Well, no, I mean, think about it. Most people always are logging in from the same device. It's more like geeks like us logging in from a lot of multiple devices, but I don't know. Well, see, that's the
1: one that uh, also I don't understand that something we do in canada is the the tax agency mails you a pin number okay and to file your tax return online you have, you have to have to that. enter that pin number
0: that makes sense
1: yeah yeah now does the u.s not do that no no we don't
0: we, we don't do that hell we don't do that Nerd. <laughs> you make you, you make it feel like it's the stone age down here i swear to god I don't know what to say. Uh, no, it's it's taxes. Taxes literally make me want to cry. Um, yeah, yeah they're, they're that really. They're that. They are that bad. So I, I, what I think I have noticed that if you have been a longtime follower of the TechSnap program, uh, maybe around like episode eighty, you probably should have bought some experience stock because apparently. <laughs> That's what we. Yeah. That's what the Tech Show has been about is really the rise of Experian here,
1: because well, uh, in this case, they're actually using the credit report side of Experian, yeah, yeah, not yeah, the I identity know. protection I know, thing. I
2: know,
1: I know, I know. Uh, speaking of identity protection services, uh, in Krebs' article at the bottom, he has uh, a bunch of guidance and links. If you were one of the people who had your TurboTax account uh, hijacked. Or if you've had your identity stolen and somebody's filing fraud and tax returns in your name. Uh, So Krebs has a bunch of information there on what you can do. There's an IRS form you have to fill out with photocopies of all your ID and so on.
0: Yeah, so step one is go read that. Step two is take care of that. And step three is email the Snap program and tell us about that. Exactly. We have a double snap coming up. We need your emails.
1: So a week after this interview with the current uh, chief information officer or security officer of Intuit, yeah. uh, Krebs uh, posted a pair of interviews with former people from Intuit, hmm. uh, specifically uh, Robert Lee, who is the business uh, security business partner at Intuit's consumer tax group until he left uh, in July of 2014. Uh, Robert Lee said that he and his team at Intuit developed sophisticated fraud models to help Intuit quickly identify and close accounts that were being used by crooks to commit massive amounts of, sta- uh, of income tax refund fraud. Uh, but Lee said that he was mystified when Intuit uh, repeatedly refused to adopt some basic policies that would make it more costly and complicated for frosters t- to abuse uh, the services from the company to do tax refund fraud. Hmm. Uh, such as blocking the reuse of the same social security number across certain number of TurboTax accounts or preventing the same account from filing more than a small number of tax returns. In particular, he says, if I sign up for an account and file tax return requests for 100 people who aren't me, it's obviously fraud. Yeah. Uh, We found literally millions of accounts that were were 100% used only for fraud, Uh, but management explicitly forbade us from either flagging the accounts as fraudulent or turning the accounts off. Uh, The Federal Trade Commission said it received 332,646 identity theft complaints in the calendar year 2014, and that almost one-third of them, the largest portion, were tax-related identity theft complaints. Wow. Tax identity theft has been the largest ID theft category for the last five years. Wow. Wow. I had no idea. Uh, he really. said the scammers who uh, hijack existing TurboTax accounts will often use stolen credit cards to pay the $25 to $50 TurboTax fees for processing and sending the refund requests to the IRS. But he said uh, crooks uh, perpetrating the, um, the refund fraud typically force the IRS and, by extension, U.S. taxpayers to cover the fee for their bogus filings. That's because when you're doing uh, the uh, refund fraud, you can take advantage of what known an online tax preparation business as a refund transfer uh, which deducts TurboTax's filing fee from the amount of the fraudulent refund request right so if the IRS then approves the fraudulent refund TurboTax gets paid by the IRS mm. right so you just have instead of paying TurboTax for the service you just say take it out of my refund and right. since yep. uh, it's not actually my tax refund it's stolen uh, I don't miss the couple of extra dollars yeah yeah. And that you're actually making the taxpayer pay for me to steal the tax refunds. Uh, the reason fraudsters love this system is because they don't even have to use stolen credit cards. So it lowers the chance of them getting caught and they don't have to go out and pay for stolen credit cards. Hmm. And he said, what is really going on here is that the fraud business is actually profitable for Intuit.
0: Right, exactly. That's what I was just thinking.
1: Yeah. So Lee confirmed uh, the Kotakula's... Uh, narrative that Intuit, uh, Intuit is an interested leader in sending the IRS regular reports about tax refunds that appear suspicious. But he said that the company eventually scaled back those reports after noticing that the overall fraud the IRS was reporting wasn't decreasing uh, as a result of Intuit's reporting. Fraudsters were simply taking their business to one of Intuit's competitors when Intuit would freeze the accounts. Right, he says, we noticed the IRS started taking action and because of this, we started to see not only our fraud numbers, but also our revenue go down uh, before the peak of tax season a couple years ago. Uh, When we stopped or delayed sending these fraud numbers to the IRS, we saw the fraud and our revenues go back up. (laughs) Uh, When there was a, uh, then there was a time period where we didn't deliver that information at all. And then at one point there was a two week delay between the time the information was ready and the time we sent it to the IRS. There was no technical reason for that delay, but he can only speculate that the real justification for that was.
2: Yeah. Uh, yeah.
1: Then uh, Krebs managed to obtain a copy of a recording made by an internal Intuit uh, conference call. So Intuit had a WebEx conference, and uh, somebody that worked there uh, got the recording and sent it to Krebs. Wow. Uh, Michael Lyons, TurboTax's deputy general counsel, described the risk of the company being overly aggressive relative to its competitors in flagging suspicious returns. Uh, for the IRS. So this is a quote here from uh, TurboTax's lawyer, basically, or deputy lawyer. Uh, As you can imagine, the bad guys, being smart and savvy, they saw this and noticed it. They uh, just went somewhere else. Uh, The amount of fraudulent activity doesn't change. The landscape doesn't change. It's like squeezing a balloon. You recognize that TurboTax returns were getting stopped at the door, uh, so they just went over to H&R Blocks or Tax Slayer or Tax Act or whatever. And all of a sudden we saw... Uh, the multi-filer activity had completely dropped off a cliff, but the amount that the IRS reported coming in through digital channels and through their self-reporting fraud network has not changed at all. Mm. The bad guys have just gone from us to the others. Mm. Uh, this recording was shared uh, by Shane McDougall, uh, who is formerly a principal security engineer at Intuit. Uh, he resigned from Intuit last week and has filed for whistleblower protection uh-huh. under the U.S. Security and Exchange Commission, alleging that the company routinely placed profits ahead of ethics. Really? McDougal submitted the recording in his filing with the SEC. Uh, complaints repeatedly raised issues with managers... Uh, directors, and even a senior vice president of the company to try to uh, rectify the ongoing fraud, but was repeatedly rebuffed and told Intuit couldn't do anything that would hurt the numbers.
2: Hmm. Uh,
1: the complainant, being uh, McDougall repeatedly offered solutions to stop the fraud, but was ignored.
2: Hmm.
1: Uh, Robert Langley, who's Intuit's chief communications officer, which I think means PR person, uh, said Intuit didn't take a penny I didn't make a penny on tax returns that are ultimately rejected by the IRS. Well, no, they don't make money when the return's rejected. But if they don't send the fact that they think it's fraud to the IRS and it gets through, then they do get paid. So there's a profit motive for them to yeah. not say, hey, we're, we're suspicious of this return.
0: That's super creepy.
1: It says, uh, revenue that comes from reports uh, included in our suspicious activity reports to the IRS has dropped precipitously as we have changed and improved our reporting mechanism. When it comes to market share, it doesn't count towards our market share unless it's a successful return. What? We've gotten better and we've gotten more accurate, but it's not about the money.
0: But it sounds like what he says there is revenue that comes from reports included in our suspicious activity reports, the IRS has dropped precipitously. Revenue yes. that comes from our reports included. It just sounds like they've changed the way they're reporting it when he says it like well, that. Well, specifically
1: what he's saying is that you know, if the IRS rejects the refund, we don't make any money. If we report to them more stuff, we make less money. (laughs) Uh, Williams added that it is not up to Intuit to block returns from being filed and that it's the IRS's sole determination whether to process a given refund request. Uh, We will flag them as suspicious, but we do not get to determine if a return is fraud or not. Uh, It's the IRS's responsibility, and ultimately they make that decision. Ah. What I get to tell uh, you is that... One of the ones we report as suspicious, the IRS rejects a very high percentage, somewhere between 80 and 90% of them. So basically, he's being very careful to make sure everything he says is exactly truthful. It's like, if we say to the IRS, this looks like fraud, there's an 80 to 90% chance that they'll reject it because it is they think it's fraud too. Uh, and he's saying, you know, we don't make money if they do reject it. It's like, none of that is against what the other people who used to work there were saying. They're just saying that, you were saying, you know, saying don't mark as much stuff as fraud because no, and then we stand a greater chance to make funny of getting No, He's sort
0: of saying that is what they're doing. He's sort of saying, without saying that that is exactly what they're doing. Is they? It's not our fault. It's the IRS's job to yeah, mark and as fraud. look. They if shouldn't. we if we if we spend all this time, like looking at multiple social security numbers on multiple accounts, simple stuff like that would bank less money. It's actually what he's saying. He's actually it's saying the, that. He's he is saying that, and that's not illegal. That's crazy to me.
2: Yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see how the story develops, especially with the uh, you know the whistleblower stuff going on now.
0: Yeah. No kidding. Yeah, maybe we'll have an update on the TechNet program soon. Why? Great story, Alan. Thanks for breaking yes. all that down. That was a lot. And to uh, there's
1: like eight times as much in the actual Krebs articles.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. And what's, which is linked, and and the best stuff is pulled out and put in our show notes too. Yep. All right. Well, I'll tell you about something else that's the best stuff. That's Ting. Go to TechSnap.Ting.com. TechSnap.Ting.com will take $25 off your first device. If you got a Ting-compatible device, and there are more and more of them all of the time, then guess what? They'll give you a $25 credit. TechSnap.Ting.com. No contract, no early termination fee, and you're only going to pay for what you use. It's a flat $6, and then it's just your usage on top of that. I've got three phones on Ting. Not because I'm a baller, because that's not true. No. It's just because it's super cheap. It's $6 for the phone line. That's it. And then it's just my usage on top of that. So I got an HTC One, an Nexus 5, and an iPhone 5. And I went to techsnap.ting.com. I got myself started. Ting also has no hold customer service. So if I ever get stuck, I know that Ting can help me. 1 855 Ting FTW. Anytime between 8 p.m. and 8, or 8 a.m. and 8 p.m. Don't worry about it. I know it's complicated. It's Allen time. So whatever time zone Allen's in right there, you see, that's the time zone you can call Ting and a real it's... human being answers the phone. So you just think to yourself, is Allen in business hours? Yes. Ting's in business hours. It's easy. TechSnap.ting.com. Try out the savings calculator. Click that how much would you save button. Go there and then like, just, just put in your usage stuff and you'll get, to, you'll get an idea of why Ting is so awesome. Also, you've been waiting for it. Ting on GSM, guess what? Well, they're open. Yeah, that's right. The I uh, see, uh, the of things, things
1: in the chat room says Ting GSM is amazing.
0: Yep, yep, yep. I've been seeing all kinds of great posts and cool devices getting on the new Ting GSM network. Check it out. What they does have, the map
1: look like? They
0: have it right here. Actually, you can get it uh, and and now it's so so cool. If you have a device like me, uh, so right now you can look at the GSM or CDMA independently. But see, guys like me, I can take advantage of either one. So it's gonna be amazing for me. I'm really really excited. For, there we go. Oh, yeah. So uh, here I'm going to zoom in. Sorry, Alan. I hope you don't mind, but I'm going to zoom yep. into Washington because, well, oh, no, not on the ocean. That's the ocean. Yeah, I, I know. <laughs> here we go. Here we go. This is, uh, this is, this is about the JB Studio uh, area right here. Anywhere in the dark green is excellent. <gasps> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They got excellent signal. They got excellent signal in the JB area. Very good. Very, very good. Yeah, that's, so that's GSM. Targeting missiles. Prepare for launch. <laughs> yeah. Alan, no. No. And then on top of that, they have the CDMA. It really is the ultimate network, plus you're only paying for your usage. Yeah. Uh, if you want a hotspot or tethering, you just turn it on. I was out at dinner last night working with Chase. We were doing a sort of a production meeting for Unfilter, and uh, we're at Sticky Big Sticky's Barbecue, amazing barbecue in our local neck of the woods. And I st- set out my Nexus 5, and I just checked the box in Android. Now it's a Wi-Fi hotspot, and Chase and I able to pull up our notes, read emails. It's super cool, and it's nice to know that I don't have to, like, have some sort of special plan or worry about getting shut Third down by my software. carrier. No, and and you know what? The other thing is, is, like, Ting never stands in the way of, like, device updates. So if there's an update out for the, by, like, in my case, Google, for the Nexus 5, Ting's not going to get in the way and block that. No, Ting is hunting badger about that stuff. They want you to have the latest and greatest. Go to techsnap.ting.com, go switch. If you're in a contract, they have an early termination relief program, and they'll pay up to $75. Per line that you have to get canceled. So now you've got the CDMA coverage, the GSM coverage, pay for what you use, no-hold customer service, the best dashboard, unlocked phones. Ting's the way to go. TechSnap.Ting.com. Try out that savings calculator and a big thanks to Ting for sponsoring the TechSnap program. TechSnap.Ting.com. Alan, I believe that while we were talking, uh, a magical beard up in a room nearby me posted yet another episode of the BSD Now program.
1: I think he actually did that. Well, he, he said it was ready yeah. before we even started. So. Yeah, he did. He did.
0: Episode 78 of the BSD program, part two of the uh, episode we talked about a couple weeks ago. You Just, guys like uh, had, a, you guys had like an episode in between. <laughs> yeah, well, because
1: the recording we originally did uh, with the Open BSD Foundation from Australia oh, had yeah, too yeah. much background noise and it was all screwy. So we waited for uh, Ken to get back home to Canada. And then interviewed him over Skype, uh, and oh, yeah. it was much better. Yep.
0: I watched that. I watched that this morning before the show, and that was quite good.
1: Yeah. yeah. Uh, the only the only squeaking was from his chair, whereas uh, I don't know if you tried to watch the one from Australia, but there was this horrible high pitched yeah. whining noise the whole yeah. time. It happens.
0: It does happen. Yep. So, part two, episode seventy eight of the BSD now program. We like to tell you about halfway through the TechSnap show. Uh, you can go start another download. Also,
1: if you watched BSD now live, remember uh, next week we're starting half an hour early because we're doing a double episode of BSD now as well. Yeah.
0: Double up, double up, because nice you're leaving. Fun. You're leaving. Yes. Because ah, Chris and I are both going to Asia BSDCon. Chris Moore, not Chris Fisher. Yeah. Yes. So Although I really wish cases. I was going.
1: Uh, the ones I, well, uh, you're coming to BSDCon, though, right? Well. The schedule for that was yes. finally announced uh, There is. Like yesterday. There is
0: one major problem, though. What's that? It happens that during the same day that self happens, and that's the one the crew all wants me to do. Is it exactly the same? For? Yeah. It's like the same days. I don't know what I'm going to um, do. I'm freaking out. I'm going to talk to you. I'll, I'll BSD we'll figure it out. BSDCon is much better. Well, I, I wish I was going to Tokyo. Or is that right? That's where it's at? Asia BSD yeah. Cans in Tokyo? Yeah, Tokyo. Got him, Jelly. Jeez. I know. Well, we'll yeah, figure BSD it out. The BSD Can is, is bigger. What if I was crazy and did both? You can't. <laughs> no, I don't think so. All right, Alan. Well, let's have people go download episode. That's something they can do. Go yes. get the HD version of episode 78 of the BSD Now program and uh, check it out. And uh, with the news all done, well, that means it's time for the TechSnap Feedback. Thanks for sending your emails to techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com or pop in that contact link at the top of the Jupiter Broadcasting website or even better, start a thread in our subreddit over at techsnap.reddit.com like I'll one from EGF Techman, Iggletuff, I don't know. Uh, but he has a question about a advanced PFSense routing problem. Referring to the network diagram that he has shown here for us, Alan, and which we have already mm-hmm. looked at before the show, but I will attempt to click that link. There we go. He says, we have a 24, uh, we have a slash 24 network from one ISP delivered to us from a single interface uh, and address, which we have configured as a DMZ on an opt interface. Also, we have a second ISP delivering a straight slash 27 network. There are multiple LANs also connected to the PF sense box. We also are in the process of getting a direct slash 24 allocation and have BGP agreements with both ISPs. The ISP's slash 24 network routes correctly to the DMZ network, NATS to LANs. That also works fine. I, and the voice, NAT to and from DMZ addresses on the DMZ interface don't work, however. I see no rules in the DMZ or WAN that should prevent it from working. I can create a proxy ARP virtual IPs from the DMZ to block on the WAN interface and get back to work, get NAT to work correctly. Then, while that has been a workaround up until now, I would like to be able to NAT in and out from the DMZ to network from the LANs, which I assume will run into the same problems as the current DMZ. Any insights or recommendations by TechSnap listeners or the host is recommended. Thanks for the wonderful show. Alan, it's pretty dense, but did you grab yeah. it all? so the first thing I would say is, uh, well, you didn't sign a rule that would
1: block it. Uh, the default rule is to deny stuff. <laughs> yeah. So you need a rule that allows it. Uh, the other thing is, um, I think by default, uh, PFSense actually puts up a rule that blocks uh, the... LAN from access? Uh, I forget. It's been a while since I used PFSense. I switched uh, my PFSense to a vanilla FreeBSD so I could do other stuff on top of it. Uh, in general, if you have your LAN network and your DMZ, you don't necessarily want to NAT between them. You just can allow the packets to pass. Yeah. Just allow the rules between them, and uh, or allow the, the traffic between them, and it'll be routed through the router, uh, but you don't want to NAT it because uh, why? waste the NAT when you don't have to
0: so he says he's looking he's in our chat room right now he says he's looking yeah. to go from LAN to a NAT DMZ to the internet
1: so if you're on the land why would you want so he wants the IP that it gets NATed
0: onto as it goes out to be from the DMZ see that's the difficult thing though because the system if he's if he's routing through the DMZ then whatever he's going out to it's going to look like he's coming from the DMZ
1: Right right, but that's what it i think that's what he wants it to do, but then like how does the traffic get back IP, to the right place well the the traffic will automatically come back from the internet to whichever i p a came out on, and then uh when the firewall gets it, it'll match what's in the nat state table and yeah but yeah, i'm a little unclear what he's actually trying to do it's a
0: difficult one uh ed e g f techman even the, even the name like I, if it was
1: You know, the LAN can't access uh, something in the DMZ. It's like, well, it's probably blocked by default because that's what most people would want it to do. Uh, But it's entirely possible to allow
0: it. But you're going to have to explicitly do that. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So in general, what you would probably want is if you're on the LAN, you're allowed to initiate a new connection into the DMZ and connect to something. And any established connections are allowed. Uh, so the reply from the DMZ back to the LAN is allowed. But if you're in the DMZ, you can't initiate a connection into the LAN because the entire point of the DMZ is to block those servers off. So if they do get compromised, they can't connect into the LAN and get to the rest of the network, mm-hmm. right? It's to stop island hopping.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, but usually you can easily allow it one direction, right? So the LAN can initiate new connections into the DMZ, but the D- and the DMZ can reply to those, but the DMZ cannot initiate its own new connection into the LAN. Right. Yeah. Uh, but if he wants to follow up a little more detail and yep. exactly what the problem is, but well, uh, honestly, we'd have to actually be able to look at his rules to tell what's going on. And uh, Well, at the same time, I understand people uh, always blocking out parts of the IP when they draw these diagrams, but at the same times, it's like, uh, if you block out too much information, I don't know well, what's and, happening. And if
0: it's all internals, what do you really... Anyways, uh, yeah. this, this is the great part. Uh, this is on the TechSnap subreddit. We'll have it linked in the show notes. If you're listening right now and you have an idea, or if maybe you have a couple of questions for our submitter, you can get involved. Go to TechSnap.reddit.com yep. or just click the link in the feedback section. It'll go there. And, and it's pretty cool to get a diagram. I love it when we get, from yes. time to diagrams. time, we get questions with diagrams. That's so cool.
1: Yeah. <laughs> that, that question without the diagram, I wouldn't have had a clue yeah. what was going on. Yeah.
0: All right. So uh, Reg writes in with a, with a problem we face here at JB um, multiple times a day. I came across this problem or a desire to be more efficient. Uh, it's probably more accurate than really a problem. I just want to make it work better. And I realized that with all your video, you must have invest- investigated this at some point. I think your listeners would value your insights on this question. Consider any process that takes a long time to create a file. Video conversion is the best example I could think of. And now consider copying that file to other places, e.g. your local computer, YouTube, or maybe your own server, etc. In Linux, it is trivial to run a remote shell script and once it's done, download the resultant file. But if it takes an hour to create a file and an hour to transfer it to another computer, it would be extremely useful to be able to have the transfer occurring while the file is being created. You could potentially cut two hours of processing into one. I looked into now, this with the, the obvious that, tools. Okay. Yep. Oh, I'm sorry. Right, like rsync yeah, and SCP. Uh, he says, yep. you know a way to do this elegantly. Go ahead. Uh, I think you're so ready. Specific- you got it.
1: Now, uh, there's... In, in unix there's pipes so if you're uh depending what you're doing you could you know if your video encoding process is like ffmpeg instead of having ffmpeg write to a file you can have it write to standard out so you have ffmpeg writing you know all your input stuff pipe mm-hmm. ssh and then some command on the other side that's going to write it to a file yeah and so basically as it uh, generates the file it'll uh put it out over the pipe and send it to the remote machine. And it'll be written as it goes. Mm -hmm. That's what pipes are for. The downside is specifically video, oftentimes the way a video file works is you need to seek around in it, right? Uh, So there's an index in the video file that contains information about how long the video is, where the keyframes are, and so on. Now, uh, at one point, those were written at the end of the file uh, because you didn't know the information until the file was finished. But if you want a file that has fast start for streaming online, where you want it to be able to people to be able to watch it before the entire thing downloads, that has to be written at the beginning. But you don't know the information to the end, so you have to go seek back to the beginning of the file and edit it at the end. And if you're doing a pipe, you can't seek, right? It's always a stream. Uh, so there's some cases where a pipe won't solve the problem. Uh, but you could consider using something like rsync and um, basically just have rsync run every couple of minutes and keep copying the temporary version of the file. rsync will only change uh, copy the parts that change. And so... Uh, you could, of
0: course, go crazy it, it with, Just like,
1: keep copying the new bits that have been written over the last five minutes or whatever. You
0: could go something crazy with DRDB or something like that. But I've also wondered, like, uh, yeah. what, is a, what is sort of the blessed way to know when the system is... With done with something, like if I wanted to have a file encode, and then as soon as that file was completely encoded, have another process that would say upload the file. See,
1: with a a shell script, right, you'd run the command that encodes it, then you check the exit level, right? When a program exits, it has an error level. If it's zero, it means it worked, and you can go on. What do you do, though, when when um, maybe
0: that shell script is on a totally different computer that's running the actual encoding, and the computer that's watching for the file to be complete is also a separate machine?
1: Ah, uh, the thing we do at Scale Engine to tell uh, specifically when a user is uploading a file, yeah. and then we want to index it. Uh, we don't want to index it if it's not finished uploading, uh, because if they try to watch it, it'll get cached as the broken version. Yeah. And then when they write it, and it causes all kinds of problems. Yep. So what we do is we watch the uh, last modified time on the file. And don't touch it until it's fifteen minutes old. Ah, once okay. the file hasn't been modified for fifteen minutes, that means you know if even if they are uploading it and it got interrupted, they would have enough time to to connect to resume back, resume. Yeah. So once the file's fifteen minutes old, then we continue.
0: I see. So Very yeah, clever. we just
1: say don't touch the file until it's at least fifteen minutes old.
0: Okay. All right. Our next email. And
1: you have to look at the modified time, not the created time, right? Because the created time yeah. will be as soon as you created yeah, it. Yeah, right. <laughs> and once it's fifteen minutes old, that's that's not the same thing as no. this file hasn't been modified in the last fifteen minutes.
0: Uh Mr. B writes in, maybe this has been discussed before, but I was wondering. After learning some of more about TLS certs and Alan's great breakdown on the trusted certs problem Lenovo has. Whether a project like Let's Encrypt offering free certs has any similar implications, i.e. if they are getting around the problem of untrusted self-signed certs showing a warning from when a website visitor visits the site by acting as a trusted CA, what stops a malicious entity from generating their own certs? Is this a revocation policy in place? Is there a revocation policy in place here or does it mitigate and mitigate that risk? Would love to hear your feedback and opinions while I'm here. I was interested to hear your dissenting opinions also on HTTP 2. Maybe Alan could elaborate on the technical issues if they're trying to solve a problem that doesn't exist. Thanks, Mr. B.
1: Uh, So uh, the TLS one. So, um, yeah, the problem with uh, untrusted and self-signed certs is that uh, you're expected to do some other verification to make sure the site you're talking to is the right one, and nobody ever does. Uh, So the Let's Encrypt thing says, well, instead of making people pay for certificates, Uh, we could offer a system where people could automatically, uh, through this API, get a signed certificate for the thing. Now, the API has some security mechanism where you prove you own the domain or something. Mm. But, you know, the problem with that is, say you were the Lizard Squad guys, and you had just taken over Lenovo's website with the DNS hijack. You now, probably, because you control their email and stuff, could prove that you are in control of Lenovo.com. Then you could get one of these Let's Encrypt certs for Lenovo.com. So now when a user goes to https://lenovo.com, they're told that, yes, this is the real legitimate version of Lenovo. Mm. And then you go through the e-commerce page, right? They're proxying it off to the actual Lenovo website somewhere. And, uh, you know, they can pull off a real man in the middle and steal your credit card. And so there's some problems that the Let's Encrypt thing would have to solve before I think it could go anywhere. Yeah. Uh Currently, I don't know that Let's Encrypt actually is a trusted certificate authority, or that it would be allowed to be because their verification is so weak. Mm. But actually, I think even the current model would have that problem with the Lenovo thing. If if Lizard Squad managed to hold on to Lenovo.com long enough, especially without Lenovo noticing, right? So if they had instead of doing what they did, if they had just switched the DNS, but then proxied it to the real Lenovo site, so didn't mess up the site, right? And uh, with the email, if they intercepted a copy but then forwarded it to the original site, uh, they could probably have gone to a regular certificate authority, (laughs) (laughs) applied for a certificate, intercepted the email with the verification that you own the domain, accepted it, got a real certificate for Lenovo, and perpetrated the same attack. So Let's Encrypt isn't making anybody any more vulnerable, so maybe we just have to mitigate it some other way. Hmm. And But even something, uh, the other possible solution for uh, self-signed certificates was this idea of Dane, where basically with DNSSEC where the d- DNS is signed and we know that the DNS isn't being spoofed, you could create a record saying this is the right public key that we authorize for Lenovo.com, and then you could use a self-signed certificate, and then with DNS, you're just verifying that it is the right self-signed certificate. Uh, that would fall down at the same place here, though. Uh, So all of the security uh, with certificate authorities kind of relies on uh, the certificate authorities uh, and domain control. And domain control isn't perfect at this time.
0: Did you want to talk about the HTTP2 stuff at all?
1: Um, Paul Hanecamp says it all better than I can. All right. There you Uh, go. I'll find his his link and throw it in the show notes.
0: And you know what? I have a a feeling it's going to be one of these things that we have plenty of time to digest and talk about. Uh, so yeah, uh, But mostly
1: his problems with it are, uh, you know, I got 99 problems uh, and trouble with HTTP routers and a bunch of different stuff. But uh, the biggest thing is that it doesn't actually solve most of the problems that it set out to. And they kind of just whole hog adopted whatever Google was proposing without actually talking about it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Basically – Nobody liked the solution, but nobody had a better one ready to go. And it's like, well, we're going to be stuck with this for 10 years. Do we really want just what's ready now rather than the right solution?
0: Yeah. I hate that. But the biggest
1: thing is like, you know, NGINX is like maybe early next year we'll have support. (laughs) So I don't see it going anywhere very fast. So it's hard to say.
0: All right, last email of the week. Don't forget we want your emails for uh, Double Snap next week. Comes in from EchoTech. E- 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 T- EchoTech 78. EC e- e- T- o- 78. He says, "Every single time I watch Tech Snap, I look at those Tetris blocks behind Alan and I keep wondering, could they ever make a perfect square?" So I tried putting the pieces together everywhere I could, and I found out it's literally impossible. But if I ever bought an extra T-piece or an L-piece, I could make a six-by-six six square. Am I the only one bothered by such a small detail? Should I stop overthinking it and just enjoy the episode? Is this even a legitimate concern? <laughs> Alan, uh, and there's – ten- First response is a link to the <laughs> Wikipedia article on obsessive-compulsive disorder. <laughs> yeah, but what's even better is after that, they get into it. Uh, Green's Dragon says, actually, this is an actual concern. My wife saw this and almost bought some for me, but after first thinking it over, that it would be that it would bother her that you can't make a square at the second that the price of it, she decided against it. It's nearly 70 US dollars. Okay, <laughs> you can't make a square. Well, I don't know where these people came
1: from, but in Tetris the goal is never to make a square. <laughs>
0: I like that this has been going on, and I like that spouses are watching the textnet program and being like, "Oh, you see that there? I, I like that. I should get that."
1: <laughs> yeah, and somebody actually has a simple proof of the Tetris lamp here. Yeah, you see that near yeah. the bottom. Yeah, and he's got details. <laughs> you know, apparently this became a big thing in uh, Reddit slash r slash math. This is a thing people care about, and even Hacker News. Yeah,
0: you know, when it when it goes from Reddit to Hacker News, you know it's serious business. <laughs> So there you go. If, uh, if, if you've been watching the video version of the TechSnap program, uh, you know exactly what we're talking about. If you're one of our many audio listeners, you've never watched the TechSnap program, you have no idea that Alan has a Tetris lamp behind him. Yeah. <laughs> that's semi-new. But specifically, the
1: entire point of Tetris is that it's supposed to be hard to make nice, even lines, because that's the objective. When did you – did you like, get like, Christmas Tetris time? is one of the only games that's, like, NP-hard. How long yes, – is it after Christmas. It's
0: been there for months, and this is the first email we've gotten about it. Well, this is only the second month. But oh, yeah. okay. All right. All right. Well, if you'd like to send your email in, uh, go over to Jupiter Broadcasting, click that contact link, and then choose TechSnap from the drop-down. Or you can go to the subreddit, TechSnap.reddit.com. We want your email, so it's a good chance to get in there and get your question answered Security, network, hardware, infrastructure, systems, network, and an administration podcast, people. That covers a lot of stuff. Send it into the show, and we'll try to answer it in next week's episode. But, Alan, with the feedback all done, I mean, I guess. That means it's time for the TechSnap roundup. Welcome to the TechSnap Roundup. Yeah, that's what that crazy music means. Now, the roundup of stories, that just didn't quite fit at the top of the show, but we still wanted to give you some insights to follow up on on your own after the show, and a lot of these links came from our subreddit over at techsnap.reddit.com. And, Alan, our first one, we've got a couple of them in the roundup, but our first one is an Intel story. Yes. Uh, So this is Intel
1: security, which is... Basically, I think they're McAfee division, but maybe uh, <laughs> right. separate. Anyway, yeah. uh, they're uh, warning uh, about six social engineering techniques that are, they've seen uh, being used against businesses very s- mm. successfully. Okay, the
0: six uh, most successful techniques.
1: Yeah, so if you scroll down, they have the, they're like very broad techniques, uh, but they found basically the six ways that uh, you use social engineering to trick somebody into doing
2: something.
0: Come on. Uh, so if you scroll down to the bottom, going, going, and there we are. Oh yeah,
1: yes. okay. One is reciprocity, right? If you do something or give something to the person, then they feel obligated to do what you want in, sure. in exchange, right? Okay. Yeah. Uh, or scarcity, right? Uh, people tend to comply when they believe that something is in short supply, right? So, you know, a spoofed email claiming to be from their bank saying you only have 24 hours before we freeze your account—they're going to be—they're going to like, oh, I have to do this right now, not look at it later. Motivated. Or I might come back and realize that it is fake or whatever, right? Mm. Or realize that I got. Two or three more of these on every one of my email accounts that aren't related to my bank in any way, and so it's obviously fake and so on, right? Also, uh, consistency, right? Once targets have uh, promised to do something, they usually stick with the promise, right? Because people don't want to appear to be untrustworthy or unreliable, right? So uh, if you're uh, posing as a company's IT guy and you uh, call up and use first, you like make the person promise to abide by all the security policies of the company or something. Then you ask them to do the suspicious thing by making it seem to be part of that. Right? So you get them to agree to something before you start uh, and then ask for the, the thing that they, they mm-hmm. know they shouldn't do or something. Yeah. Right? Some of these, are even you can see how they use these in sales to con people into doing stuff and buying stuff. Uh, four is liking, right? Targets are more likely to compi- uh, comply with a social engineering request when they like the person. That's why we saw that one... Uh, uh, not so long ago, uh, was it the militants in Syria and so on were being uh, tricked into handing uh, to running uh, applications on the computer by girls over Skype that were working for the opposition? Yeah. Right? So uh, if you like someone, you're more likely to do something for them. That really shouldn't be news. Uh, and then authority, right? If you claim to be. The CEO of the company or the head of IT or or the government or something, that's how you trick people. Right? You see lots of spam pretending to be from the government or from a bank or some position of authority. And lastly is social validation. Right? People tend to comply when they think everybody else is doing the same thing or that they'll be ostracized for not doing the same thing everybody else is. You know, uh, so if you send a phishing email, make it look like everybody else in the company got it, even if you were specifically spear phishing only the weaker people. Right, if you remember um, uh, when they hacked the Onion, uh, the newspaper site, uh, they specifically didn't email the people in the IT department that they thought wouldn't fall for the phishing <laughs> right. scam; it would detect it. Very clever. and probably tell other people about it. They only targeted the reporters that wouldn't know better. Mm-hmm, so, so
0: mm-hmm. it's very true. Is there? I mean, it's stuff that people that watch this show probably know. But yeah, and that, that
1: was fairly obvious. But I figured you know, it has the big name on it, and it it. Uh, it really spells it out quite well, and so I thought it would be a good one to pass on. Even if uh, – most of the audience should already know that stuff, but maybe it's, a, it's in the right format. It would be easy for them to hand on to somebody
0: else uh, to kind of push yeah, it exactly. on people that don't know. Yep. <clears throat> yep, very much. Uh, okay, so the next story, not too surprising this happens from time to time, but I don't know how often it's Microsoft that finds it, a vulnerability in Samba yes. that Microsoft spotted.
1: So, uh, yeah. So, and the, the big thing is this was a very, very, very big, scary one. Uh, so a vulnerability in Samba, which is the software uh, you run on FreeBSD and Linux and so on to, uh, share files with Windows. Sure. Basically it's a Windows file server yeah. for Linux. Uh, has a, vul- a remote code execution vulnerability, which means that somebody sends a certain uh, packet to your Samba server, and it will run whatever code they want as root. <laughs> yeah, and it affects all versions of Samba from three point five through to uh, four point two RC four.
0: Yeah, is there anybody that doesn't run Samba as root? Does Samba? I guess some installations uh, might run Samba much, as a Samba I don't user, even think but you can right? Because you got to open the port. We got to open up one thirty nine.
1: Yeah, low-level, low-number port number, and you have to have access to files owned by everybody right? and be able to write files as other users. Yeah, right, right. And have access
0: to the password database. So, yeah, you compromise Samba, you get root.
1: Yeah. Uh, So, yeah, this is fairly rare, but the other big thing here is knowing that how many routers ship with Samba now, right? A lot of routers have a USB port where they can be a file server.
0: Yeah, you stick a drive on it.
1: Yeah, or a print server because Samba also has the printing. Yeah. So, and like... Your Synology? Yeah. So 99.9% chance that's running Samba and not the most recent version. Oh, for sure. And you know, your Buffalo NAS. Every oh, NAS sure. that you buy off a shelf. Yeah. Every, but basically, anything that probably, does Windows file sharing. Anything yeah. that
0: does Windows file sharing that's not a Windows box has Samba.
1: Yes. Like, it's entirely possible that Android phones have LibSMB in them.
0: Oh, I'm sure they have LibSMB, right? Or if they don't. Yeah, the client, sh- at least. It's yeah. Not
1: necessarily a server. Now, I don't think the client's vulnerable. It's only the server. Right. But, you know, there are. It's Basically, I, I'm sure most people that have a number of devices in their house have at least two that are vulnerable to this. There you go. And uh, hopefully most people don't have their, um, their NAS uh, facing the internet. But if they do and they have SAM installed, they're in
0: big trouble. Put your NAS away. Shoot. All right, Alan. Well, we've talked a lot about Superfish. But, uh, of course, Superfish isn't the end of the story. The SSL-busting code that threatened Lenovo users is found in a dozen more applications. Because Superfish was just implementing a technology from another company. Oh, yes, Comodia. that's right. Comodia. Yeah. <laughs> so um, we have a link in the show notes, but there's a, there's a whole list of software that uh, uses Commodia's uh, technology.
1: Uh, um, it's round up slightly out of order, but uh, we'll just si- skip to that story. Sure. There's an ad blocking software called PrivDog or PrivacyDog. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, That works basically the same way as Superfish, except for instead of injecting ads, it's trying to block them. Privdo. But it uses the same thing and uh, so causes the same security problems.
0: Oh, no kidding? Yeah. Jeez.
1: Since it's doing the same SSL interception, except for instead of adding ads, it's trying to remove
0: them. So it's software you might actually want, but it's actually causing you to have the same vulnerability. I think the interesting thing here, though, is like, everybody, when the news broke, really freaked out about Lenovo and Superfish. And then when you, look, when you step back for a second, you realize there's a lot of oh, other people that are doing like this there are like 20 too. other
1: applications using the same thing. Yeah. and that mm. Some of them aren't even known to be malicious and blocked by virus scanners. Yeah. Because anybody can buy the technology.
0: Hey, Alan, what do you say we do an article from ReadWriteWeb.com? Today's hackers are more sophisticated than you might think
1: yeah mostly they're talking about uh how you need defense in depth uh and how some attackers are actually managing to walk through defense in depth with island hopping
2: mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. old techniques we've talked about but new things yep. for the general public to consider
1: it looks like a good read, so i stuck
0: it in there yeah yeah uh uh now uh you know what i think this was a feedback question that made it in the roundup so i'll just yep. link i'll link yep. folks to yep. it replacing my ten plus year old router uh we had a submission from uh x z uh, s r p and uh I will xzsnrp, and there's 11 comments so far, and he's looking to replace his 10-year router. He says, hello, uh, Chris, Alan, Reddit. I'm finally looking to replace my 10-year-old Fritzbox as a home router. Uh, Of course, uh, Noah's raved about router boards. He's looked into PFSense. Uh, He says, on various episodes of BSD Now, there's obviously uh, uh, a lot of positive comments about uh, alternatives to router OS. Uh, so if folks that are looking to comment want to go over there, he's looking for help on ideas. He says he's currently studying computer science, and networking knowledge is still quite limited at the moment, but he wants to replace it. And uh, he also wants to be able to just supply wireless from it. That's a big part of it.
1: Yeah. Um, now, there's two roads for the wireless. You can get a regular wireless AP and just connect it over Ethernet to your regular router, uh, or you can try to get a Wi-Fi device or a, um, a USB Wi-Fi yeah. thing. Uh, the PFSense website has the PFSense store where they sell devices that have uh, well working wireless. And uh, that's, that's really, what that's my easy. recommendation would be. Uh, especially if you're not an expert in networking and you're not going to want to set it all up yourself. Mm-hmm. PFSense gives you the right balance of nice web interface mm-hmm. that you can set up without having to know a lot, while at the same time still having full control over everything and being able to do complicated setups if you need it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Right? You know, some interfaces try to um, be. So simple that you can't do anything complicated, uh, or if you do something complicated, then it, it becomes hard to do something simple. And PF Sense walks that line very well.
0: I teased it earlier in the show. Uh, Moxie Marlinspike has his blog post, mm-hmm. GPG and Me, and it's a pretty good post. He talks about how it's at a philosophical dead end. But the part that I think is more poignant to what you were talking about, Alan, he says, uh, Today, journalists use GPG to communicate with sources securely. Activists obviously use it to coordinate worldwide. Software companies use it to help secure their infrastructure. And some really heroic people have put it to an enormous amount of effort to get us here. However, he comments about the people that send him emails signed by GPG are people that have just decided this is how they're going to do it. There's deep structural problems. GPG isn't the thing that's going to take us to a ubiquitous end-to-end encryption. And if it were, it's kind of a shame that it finally get here uh, with 1990s cryptography. If there's any good news, it's that GPG's minimal install base means we aren't locked into this madness and that we can start fresh with a different design philosophy. And when we do, let's use GPG as a warning for our new experiments. And remember, the innovation is saying no to a thousand things. Mm -hmm.
1: Uh, Yeah, uh, GPG uses some... Uh, older crypto stuff, especially like DSA and so on. Um, I've seen some stuff, uh, especially uh, like what like Google's trying to do with their thing where uh, they do the crypto in the browser and JavaScript yeah. using elliptic curve. Yep. And it's, uh, you know, GBG getting an update so that it would actually be compatible. And that has some advantages to it. But, you know, we've kind of got to the point where we decided we have to have this ability to... Um, to have an infrastructure for the keys rather than just, you know, have a key signing, share them offline yeah. and so on. Yeah.
0: But doesn't that seem like the most secure? It is, uh, but it's not working. But, I mean, cause it yeah, has not worked. working. We've, we've, we've had it
1: for 25 years now and it's not caught on. So obviously we need a better solution, right? Yeah.
0: Sad though. It is, uh, because you use it's it. It's hard to say
1: what the right answer is. You use uh, it. I do. Yes, it's required at the FreeBSD project to prove your identity when yeah. you send certain emails. I use it. And so I sign my emails with it, yes. But my dad's not going to be able to use no, it. No, exactly. And, and basically, while well, I use it to sign my email, I rarely send encrypted emails.
0: Yeah, I sign. I don't encrypt very often. Yes. I mean, that's just very, prove very my
1: identity. Yeah. Yeah. If we required that for all emails, then that would eliminate spam. I to a large portion.
2: Yeah, no kidding.
1: But as far as that goes, we have things like DKIM to just prove that this domain actually or this email came from this domain rather than yeah. from this person. Mm-hmm. And that solves most of the problem without having individual users have to deal with the keys. But the biggest yeah, the biggest problem with GPG is how many people here have lost a GPG key and then had to have a different one.
0: Right. Well you know what I find interesting, Alan, is if you look at systems that have cropped up that are like more like the quote unquote messaging systems like Telegram or Apple's iMessage. They all have keys, and it's it's end end encryption. But they're like automated key servers that automatically handle all of that for you, where the user yes, doesn't well, the, the really problem have with oversight. Those ones is that like Apple has your private key? Right. They could input so they a can new encrypt key. Everything. Well, or, or that yes, they could add their own key. Yeah, I know. Oh yeah, I know. And they can encrypt everything so that it goes to the person you're sending it to. But that's the trade-off when you don't have these offline like key signing parties and stuff like that that you have. Like it's scale, right? We were talking right, about but, scale but, earlier. They had a they had a big they had a big key signing party. I know it's not practical, but for God's sakes, like well, if you see, see the, the problem with the Apple one, you don't actually have any proof that the person you're talking to is who they say they
1: are, right? Right? It's it's only it's only doing the encryption. It's yeah. not doing the yeah. authentication. Have you have you that's, at, what, that's what a key signing party actually does. Um, is be like, hey. My key is signed by Dag Erling, the previous D security officer.
0: I saw and him do it. Like
1: Yeah, he like Dag Erling looked at my passport yeah. and says, yes, I verified that this key actually belong is in the possession of the real Alan Jude. Yeah. And then his key was signed by Peter Wem and by somebody else. And so somebody yeah. that I don't actually know, but knows somebody in common somewhere in that web of trust can have... Can be absolutely sure that they're talking
0: to the real me and not a fake one. So the uh, Keybase.io has done some interesting stuff because you can connect. Like you can use Keybase as a central spot for this stuff, and then use it. Like you can connect. Like I can ver. I verify because I connect like my right. Twitter and my Facebook. Yes. And- so
1: th- this is um, being able to take my GPG key and tie in. Uh, proof that this is my real Twitter account that belongs to the GPG key. This is my real Reddit account. This is my real uh, Hacker News account. And this is my real website and and so on. Uh, and it's interesting. And it's actually using uh, regular GPG. Now they have their own client that can do some stuff. And you can choose to upload your, public, your private key into their web interface. So you can use it anywhere without having to key with you. I don't do that, but it's possible. And... Yeah, so that's an interesting approach, and it's still using the same old GPG we've all been using, but... Sort of modernizing uh, a little bit. Yes, and it's basically adding the social media side to it, but I don't know if it... Mm -hmm. It's not getting anybody who didn't already at least have the capability to do GPG the
0: hard way. It's making it easier, but... Yeah, Yeah. it's not solving the core problem. Yeah, Exactly. Uh, so we have an article from the GFI blog: the most vulnerable operating systems and applications in 2014. Mm-hmm. So if you scroll down
1: to the summary one and, and uh, operating systems, you'll yeah. see that the uh, the most vulnerable operating system was not Windows, like you might expect. Wait for it uh, down a little bit more. Yeah, it is. it is.
0: Wait, wait. Oh, did you see it? I missed you it. You passed it. Okay.
1: Uh, one more. There oh you. yeah, there it is. There's it's macOS with 147 <laughs> vulnerabilities. <laughs> Then uh Apple iOS iOS <laughs> oh, with hundred and twenty seven, and then the Linux kernel with one hundred and nineteen, and then <laughs> well, uh your various versions then of 2008.
0: Windows. Now Alan, are you a believer that uh now just vulnerability counts yeah. to tell the whole story, right. obviously. Yeah. And
1: also if you look at the next one, next uh thing, which is the top the, apps. Uh, top apps, yeah. Internet explorer is kind of part of Windows, not Necessarily, really anymore, I guess, but kind of uh, is though. You the, can't one that. The other Internet Explorer number of vulnerabilities is more than Chrome and Firefox put together. Yeah, it only is. more by one. it <laughs> yeah. turns out, but <laughs> is more than uh, all of uh, the other two put together, and the number of high vulnerabilities is much higher. Mm-hmm. Uh, like double Jeez. the other two put together. Yeah, almost. it is two twenty versus uh, Chrome's
0: eighty six or Firefox's fifty seven.
1: Um, Flash had fewer vulnerabilities than Java, but more of those vulnerabilities were critical. So mm. that's why it looks like it's, it's actually sorted by the number of high, not the number of Well, and if you look number. too, that's why it looks out of order.: slightly. There's
0: one, two, three, four. Adobe products on that list. Right. You add them all up, that sucks.
1: Uh, the interesting, other interesting one was looking at uh, Firefox ESR, the extended support edition, yeah. has far fewer vulnerabilities than Firefox, which suggests most of the vulnerabilities in Firefox are related to the new code. New features. Yeah. And so maybe more people should be running ESR, honestly. Yeah. Um, or, or they need uh, their development, they, you know more stuff needs to be found in the nightlies and so on before it gets pushed out into the releases. But... Uh, so
0: what you're saying, if I want to be safe on the internet, is I should run Firefox ESR on Windows 7.
1: Well, no, you should run on PreBSD because it has less than all those
2: <laughs> <things>. Of course.
0: <laughs> nice, Alan. Oh, nice. <laughs> all right, very good.
1: Uh, okay, all oh, right. Yeah, so you know, that doesn't tell the whole story, obviously.
0: But no, was- yeah, because sometimes getting more vulnerabilities reported just means you have you know, a better pipeline for finding those things. Uh, all right, this next story is developing. The chat room asked before we even started what I thought about it, and my answer was, let's wait and see, because I think this thing's going to be stretched out until the 2016 presidential debate. But today, as we record this episode of the TechNet program, the FCC has approved net neutrality rules that reclassifies broadband as a utility in the United States.
1: Uh, yes, and while this sounds good, we'll have to see what actually happens. In
0: particular, yeah. it, apparently
1: the... 300 pages of regulation going into this and it's like well that seems like more than what we actually want yeah
0: yeah and there was some last minute changes that people are pretty uncomfortable with Uh, and there's also that question of what the hell is lawful content because all of this is predicated on applying to lawful content that's a pretty what's lawful I don't know yeah because uh, sometimes, honestly, I, w- I worry that Jupiter Broadcasting content isn't lawful from time to time, and so that makes me a little concerned. But we'll see. Yep. And of course, this is going to be a huge fight. There are already lawsuits it's, planned.
1: Uh, well, so. and the, the greatest one is—I don't know if you've seen Verizon's reaction, uh, but they posted up uh, their their headline is like FCC imposes 1930s rules on the internet," and uh, they their entire blog post is in Morse code. <laughs> And then you click and you get a PDF of their press release and the first two pages of it are like typewritten instead of or done in a fake font that makes it look like a typewriter and then they go to regular
0: block font at the end. Wow, that's that's going all out. That's impressive. I have not seen that. I will go look Uh, for that. Uh, Okay.
1: Verizon has a hissy fit over net neutrality. No kidding. Now, while I agree that the unregulated nature of the internet has been uh, a boon to it, when the internet was actually booming, we had many, many ISP competition had options and changes. Now we don't. Exactly. We have a couple of big media companies. That's we shouldn't have let that happen. Yes. But it's too late to fix it now. If
0: they really, truly, truly, truly wanted to fix it, they would have figured out a way to keep things competitive and keep the independent local ISP in business.
1: In particular, they we need more things like uh, what's Ting's ISP going to be called? Is I don't it think it's just part too? of Ting. Yeah. 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 Uh, and more stuff like that. Yep. Uh, and we need to stop. Uh, basically, the, the, where the r- real problem came in is when we got saw the integration between the ISPs and the media companies,
2: mm-hmm.
1: right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Comcast as an ISP was okay, but then when they got with Universal Studios, that's bad. Yeah. When you have uh, Verizon, which owns movie studios yeah. and so on, being right. the ISP, right. that's the problem. I even kind of it?
0: get wiggly about Google and YouTube. Yeah.
1: Well, especially I don't know if you saw their recent stuff with advertising. Yeah. Yeah. Craziness. Yeah. Um. But yeah, the problem, like in Canada, it's actually worse. We only have the like three major carriers or four media companies and stuff, and they own basically every sports stadium, newspaper, television station, radio station, and phone, internet ISP company mm-hmm. in the country. Yeah. And most of the other small ISPs are just reselling Bell's network. Right. Because our government uh, mandated that Bell has to allow resellers at this set level of discount. Yeah. Uh but that's only for the DSL side. We don't have something like that for the cable side yet. There was proposal for this thing called true choice, where the cable companies own the line to your house and they have to lease it out and they get like their six dollars a month off your cable bill and then you can pick from any of the cable companies. Right? Kind of federate all the cable yeah. companies networks into one yeah. big thing. Yeah. Since it's all over IP now anyway, it'd yeah. be Yeah. But you'll have to see how that goes.
0: Uh, yeah. Uh So yeah. So today it's a big day, but yep. I suspect it's just the beginning of a very very long fight that we'll we'll end up with something that's completely different than what, what 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 was announced today.
1: Yeah, and you know all of this only technically applies to the U.S.
0: Yes, right. Although it does seem like people do watch. Well, so.
1: you know that's where most of the the bandwidth comes from. So. Mm.
0: Hey, uh, why don't we go to our next roundup story? Tens of thousands of home routers at risk with, guess what, duplicate SSH keys. Surprise, yeah, surprise. So
1: what seems to happen here is uh, you know, a company makes a nice router. And, uh, <laughs> okay, sure. Then, then um, an ISP in Spain <laughs> uh, says, we're going to put our own custom version of the firmware on this that has like our name on it and, and does stuff so we make it easier for us to manage and blah, blah, blah. And one of the things they do is like enable the SSH daemon. But basically what they did when they made the image that they flashed onto every machine, they had generated the SSH key before. So instead of each, uh, instead of the image having no SSH key and then yeah. every time we, uh, flash it out and then each machine generates a key when it starts up, they all have exactly the same key. So when you SSH into them, you can't tell one from the other. Woo. And so someone could pretend to be your router and intercept your password or whatever. Genius. Although, they also ask the bigger question, why do these have SSH enabled by default? Most people aren't going to know how to do it. And And also, you know, the other thing is, I don't know how perfect forward secrecy applies to uh, SSH. But it seems like if someone has your private key, they might be able to decrypt the communications over SSH. Hmm. And if everybody has the same private key, you have this problem. Now, oftentimes you see this problem on embedded devices because generating the SSH key will take a long time. Um, I think wasn't it DigitalOcean or somebody had that problem uh, at one point where they weren't regenerating the keys because it was going to take too long. I
0: don't remember. Uh, it's not it like too like uncommon. A year ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we have heard yeah. of it of several different circumstances. But yes, uh,
1: embedded devices often try to cheat on the SSH key because it would take a long time to generate it on a very slow processor. And you
0: think about it from like a customer use standpoint, you get this brand new device, you turn it on, and then the first thing it does is spend ten minutes doing something that you can't even tell right, what it's but if doing. It's only two
1: or three minutes. It's like. You know, if the instructions says it'll take a minute to warm up the first time, I don't
0: know anybody that wouldn't accept yeah, that. Yeah, if they could somehow tell you, hey, or even have a light, like, why not have a freaking LED light that says generating security? Really, That'd you give me a light far, that lights whatever. up and says it's mm-hmm. making, se- making security happen. Or like, just whatever. Like, but, I'd be all in. Your,
1: your routers, your modem shouldn't have SSH on it unless you mm-hmm. yeah. enabled it anyway. <laughs> And then if you go into the web interface and say, I want SSH on, you're going to be perfectly happy to uh, let it run for two or three minutes. When you turn it on,
0: you'll know that you need to wait. Very good point. Uh, All right. Well, this is interesting. I think it's probably an indication of where the Atom processors are at. But Intel is planning to rebrand the Atom chips. Uh, kind of along the same lines of the core processors, too. Intel has announced it's going forward to use a style of branding for its Atom chips similar to the ones for the core chips. Atom CPUs will have the X3, X5, and X7 designations, much like we have i3, i5, and i7 for the core brands. An Intel Atom X3 will deliver good performance, an X5 will be even better, and X7 will be best. According to an Intel spokesman, uh, however, uh, Chris is worried that when they release the Intel X11, it'll just stick around for 30 years and will never replace it. <laughs>
1: uh, yeah, um, you know, uh, it would making it be in line uh, might be helpful. Yeah, um,
2: and the
0: atoms are getting much You can actually
1: tell uh, what it is when, when the model number actually tells you the information you want to know about it. It's helpful. Uh, You know, I kind of wish the model number told you the number of cores it had Hmm. instead. But, you know, they generally make sense now. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's, you know, i3 or x3 or whatever. And then the generation number and then the next three digits are just a model number. Bigger numbers are yeah, faster.
0: Yeah, it's fine. Whatever, Intel. Yeah, it it's, mostly works. Yeah, it sounds um, like cars a little bit, but it's fine.
1: Right. Basically, the Atom is going from being something you only yep. found in netbooks to something you're actually going to see in a lot more things now. Yeah,
0: and that's cool with me. I wonder how they're doing
1: it for the server Atom ones. Yeah, those, those ones maybe those kind of weird. With, where They've had the four-digit model numbers, yeah. but they've been just like Atom yeah. blah.
0: Maybe those will always be X7s, or maybe they'll have like a Xeon-type line of Atom processors.
1: Right, well, because the Xeons have the E3, E5, and yeah. E7. Yeah. Let's go with the I3, 5, and 7 yeah. we have in desktop. Yeah. And I don't X seemed like a weird letter for the uh, atom. Now, I can understand the A single digit numbers are are kind of taken by ARM. Like you see, like yes. Cortex A12 yes. and so yes. on in ARM. Press. So I understand maybe not going with A, but.
0: So they're going with X.
1: Yeah. X kind of like. It's confusing because they have the i7 Extreme processors. Yeah. And so... X I don't sounds X better makes than makes most I sense. to me. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's where I find it. Really well, but, you know, if, if your goal is power price performance instead of speed price performance, X, the Atom is
0: better, possibly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, Alan. Our last roundup story, Windows SSL interception gone wild. Ah, so uh, Facebook, after the Lenovo story,
1: uh, started looking at what certs they're seeing uh, or what certs users are seeing when they try to go to Facebook. Interesting. What a great data point. So they're point. Uh, looking at people doing SSL interception. or w- SSL interception users are experiencing when they're going to Facebook. And they have a breakdown by, you know, what countries it's happening in and, and how much it's happening and so on.
0: Look at that. Interesting. Windows 8 Chrome 40 is the biggest. All Windows, really. Jeez, look at this. all Windows. It's all Windows. It's all totally well, weird. I imagine most
1: people that go to Facebook mostly do it on Windows, yeah, or right. Android,
0: yeah. Hmm. Hmm. And it looks like a lot of them. Boy, uh, Australia, get your, Oh, actually, Australia's about in the same shape as the U.S. I was going to give them a hard time, but they're they're doing about as bad as we are. Yeah. Well, there you go. That's it for the for the uh, two oh three episode, isn't it, Mister June? Oh,
1: it's uh, just one other thing. I guess yeah. I kind of forgot about it until we mentioned Facebook. I got my email back from Facebook the yeah. other day. Remember their the threat open exchange? Threat to, uh, yeah, they're like, yeah, so we got too many people, so
0: you can't come in. Yeah, I heard a report uh, about Threat Exchange on the radio. Uh, I think it was an NPR report, and they were pretty positive on it. Um, it seems to be yeah, like,
1: uh, except for it's. It sounds like it's going to be a cookie club. It'd be like Facebook, yeah, uh, Twitter, yeah, Bitly, yeah. The uh, folks yeah, that, that give a them a grid, yeah, like that.
0: yeah. That's so annoying, but they'll open you, up. Eventually. You
1: need the independent security researchers in there if you want to get anything done.
0: Yeah, otherwise, it's just for show. Yep. So, uh, well, maybe eventually. So, did you get the sense that? Later on, or they just to maybe
1: it? later, but you know, it was fairly big, and they were just like, "Yeah, sorry."
0: <laughs> you know, I've heard Facebook has a hard time dealing with a lot of users. You know, they don't <laughs> scale very well, Alan. So, of course, they couldn't just take that, right? Like, what's their excuse? They don't have infrastructure to support a lot of users, because I know that's not true. They don't have the data center, because I know that's not true. So, what is their excuse for not accepting more users? Yeah. It's to make it elite, isn't it? Oh, that's frustrating. It's hard to say. Yeah, it's uh, frustrating. We'll have though. to
1: see. Uh, Going forward, how it goes. Yeah,
0: yeah. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Tech Snap. Now, don't forget, we're doing a double snap next week, so join us at 11 a.m. Pacific. Alan, what's 11 a.m. Pacific? 2 p.m. Eastern, which would be 1900 UTC? Yeah, over at jblive.tv and uh, jblive.info for the audio streams. And don't forget that subreddit. Go to techsnap.reddit.com. You can submit stories, um, feedback. Uh, any kind of anything you think will make this show better, we like to have it there. And then last but not least, we really want your emails. You can click the contact link over on Jupiter Broadcasting or you just email us directly. TechSnap at jupiterbroadcasting dot com. That shirt lots of emails for next week. The logo, all wrapped up, it's done. Uh, yes, Teespring. I got the email. my My shirt is being printed. Yep, Teespring sent me the email. said it's being printed. So I don't know if I'll have it by next week for the double recording. But I bet by the time we get back from the double recording, we'll all have our shirts. So if you order the new TechSnap 200 shirt, it should probably be coming in the next couple of weeks. So now that they've so the way Teespring works is now that it's done, they stop all orders, they begin printing and shipping. Uh, domestic usually arrive, domestic and Canada usually arrive first, and then it goes out a couple of weeks from there. But probably over the next few weeks, if you ordered a Mm t-shirt. If you haven't gotten one, I think it would take about 15 of you to just unlock it and start it all over again. You go to teespring.com slash techsnap. If about 15 of you put in an order, it would start the order process over again. So you could still get a TechSnap 200 logo shirt. Okay. Yeah, I guess we didn't do a good job of pushing that the last couple of weeks. No, not in this show. No, like I mentioned in other shows, but we just didn't really mention it in this show. But we, we sold the limit. I, I ordered mine the first day and then forgot about it. Yeah, same here. And we, but we met our limit, and then once we met the limit so we were getting our shirts, like we didn't care anymore. <laughs> Oh well. So hopefully you got a chance to get one and maybe we'll do one again in the future. Okay, everybody. Well, thank you so much for tuning this week's episode of TechSnap. We'll see you right back here next week.